You return your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 10. We're going to be looking at Ezra chapter 1 this morning, but we're going to start off here in Isaiah. And so let's look at verse 20. He says, Now in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but they will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness. For a complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not fear the Assyrian who strikes you with a rod and lifts up his staff against you, the way Egypt did. For in a very little while my indignation against you will be spent. My anger will be directed to their destruction. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the ministry of your word and how it is living and active. Lord, that you are working in each of our hearts this morning, wanting us to, to see you, to love you, to trust you, and to obey you. Lord, we just ask now as we, as we look at your word together uh, that the name of Christ would be honored, Lord, that the word spoken would be uh, pleasing to you and, and true. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So it is very nice to have students back. Seems like it's been so long since we've had students at His Hill, so we're thankful to the Lord for that. And we have a, a good group, enjoyed the first couple days we've had together. And as soon as they got here, Charlie left. Uh, so he's in Nevada. But grateful as always to be able to, to preach and to share with you all. As Again, I was just thinking through what, uh, what the Lord had me talk about this morning. Something that kept coming to mind was this passage in, in Isaiah and then also in Ezra chapter 1. We'll turn there in just a minute. But uh, thinking about the reality that God is never going to fail to fulfill His Word. And God's Word is a sure thing. It's certain it's something that we can have confidence in that God is going to stand by what He said and He's going to fulfill it. And so as we look at this passage here and then jump over to Ezra, uh, just a little bit of backdrop to the story of Ezra is the Israelites were saved by the Lord from slavery. Under David, they become a great nation. And then under Solomon, they begin to turn their hearts away from God. And God had told them from the very beginning that if they rejected him, if they turned after other gods and worshipped foreign idols, that he was going to punish them. That he was going to dispossess them. He was going to take them out of the land of promise and let them be conquered by other nations. And so that's what happens. And in the books of Kings, uh, he 
the, the Lord raises up these other nations that come in, and that's what Isaiah is prophesying about here, that the northern half of Israel, uh, they're going to be conquered by the Assyrians. And a hundred or so years later, the, the southern half is going to be conquered by the Babylonians. And so if you flip over to Ezra, chapter 1, God had promised them in the text that we just read that God was going to bring them low in their punishment, but that eventually his indignation would be spent, that his wrath would be appeased, that he would uh, desist from their punishment and he would bring them back into the land. And so it wasn't a permanent thing. He had promised them this is only going to be a temporary displacement out of the land of Israel. This is an act of discipline, but I'm going to bring you back when you turn from the Lord. And he tells them specifically how long it is that they're going to wait. Uh, and so when we, when we get to the book of Ezra, they've been in exile for 70 years in Babylon. The southern tribes have. And God had told them, after 70 years, I'm going to bring you back into the land. And that's what we come to in Ezra chapter 1. In verse 1, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he also put it into writing, saying, I'm not going to read that next part yet. I want to look at the very beginning there. It says, the reason why God begins to stir in the heart of Cyrus, in verse 1, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord that God begins to take action with the purpose of fulfilling what He has promised. And God initiates in order to fulfill. What God is about to do is purposeful. It's not random. It's intentional. It's something that He's planned. But it's, it's a comfort for our hearts to know that God is going to keep His word, that He fulfills what He has said. Why is it so important that, that he keep his word? Uh, and, and this is something that, you know, in, in our culture today, society today, you know, living in the flesh, we don't think a whole lot all the time that it's important that we keep our word. It used to be that your word was really important, that it was tied up with your character, with your integrity, with your honor. But now, rather, your, your character is tied up with uh, what calls you support. Your character is tied up with, uh, with following your own pursuits. But it used to be that keeping one's word was a really big deal. Uh, if somebody did not stay true to what they said, what they committed to, then it reflected on their own reputation, their own character. And that's true with the Lord, that it's important that God keep His word because he, in his nature, cannot lie. That's what scripture tells us in Titus chapter 1 and in Hebrews 6, that the Lord cannot lie. And so if God was not to fulfill what he has promised, and he would be going against what is true of him. And this is why it's so important for us as Christians to have a desire in our hearts to be people of integrity who keep our word, because... We are made in the image of God and we're called to bear His likeness. And one of the ways that we bear the image of God is by keeping our word. Because God keeps His word. He never goes back. 
And God's people should be characterized by people who keep their word. And so it's, it's important that God keep his word because it's who he is. It's maintaining his own character. But another reason why it's uh, very valuable for him to keep his word is for our own hearts. That as we are looking around us for somewhere to put our trust and somewhere to put our faith and our confidence some, someone or something to be a refuge to us and an encouragement to us, then knowing that God is always going to stay true to what he said allows for us to put confident hope in Christ. We can be full of hope because we know that he's going to do what he's promised. It's not that we're putting our trust in the Lord and saying, I really hope he pulls through. That's not how it works. We took our students over to the climbing tower this, the other day. Uh, one of their initiation phases is we all go down to our high ropes course, and it's a great time to get to know each other and see each other cry a little bit. And, uh, no, I don't think anybody cried. Uh, but we, we go down there, and how, how scary it would be if as they're getting hooked up and they're about to jump off the leap of faith, and Levi's hooking them up to the leap of faith, and he tells them now, I think this rope is going to hold you, but I'm not sure. So just, just hope for the best, and we'll see what happens. Uh, that's not a comfort. The comfort comes in knowing with certainty this is actually able to hold me, that this is going to be true to what its purpose is. And God is going to be true to what he said. And so because he keeps his word, we can have the utmost confidence and full assurance that as we place our faith in Christ in our day-to-day lives, it is a faith that's well-placed, that we're not going to be disappointed because he keeps his word. And so as he, in Ezra chapter 1, is fulfilling his word, we, we realize, just another example, that the activity of God is always in harmony with the word of God. God is taking action here in order to fulfill his word because the activity of God is in harmony with the word of God. As we want to know the will of God for our lives, and this is a question that college students ask a lot, uh, as we want to know the will of God, we come to the word of God. That the word of God leads us in the will of God. And the activity of God is orchestrated or it's in line with what he's said. And God, what God does is never outside of what he says. And so two observations here about this is that God will fulfill his word, but that means that God is going to be the one to fulfill his word, not me. It is not my responsibility to keep God's word. God is going to keep his word. And we can be tempted to think that it's time for me to help God out. Because he's taking too long or maybe there's a lot of opposition. uh, And we hear a lot of criticism towards the Lord. So we say, God, don't worry, I'll help. And the case study we see in scripture of this is, is Moses when he knows that God is going to raise him up to deliver the Israelites out of the slavery in Egypt, and and Moses decides before the time that he's supposed to lead them out, he says, all right, God, I'm ready to help lead your people out of Egypt. 
And so he murders an Egyptian, and he has to run for his life because he was acting outside of God's timing. He knew what God wanted, and he said, God, I'm going to help. And often when we try to help God, it doesn't work out very well. But instead, he wants us to see that he is going to keep his word. So the fact that God fulfills his word, he says here, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, that it's the Lord who is going to fulfill it. Not me. Not you and I. He does it. He uses people. He does it through us oftentimes. But it's the Lord himself who is keeping his word. Good intentions don't justify the behavior that we do in self-reliance. You know, that Moses had the best of intentions. We can have really good intentions. And yet, that doesn't justify our acting outside of the will of God or before God's time. And then secondly, that God fulfills His word. He doesn't fulfill my word. So first we see that God is the one who fulfills His word, but then we secondly observe that it's His word that's being fulfilled, not mine. Yesterday, we, uh, I was working outside most of the day, and I've had an office job for probably 10 years now. Uh, so even though I grew up on a farm, working outside, it takes a toll on me. Uh, and so at the end of the day, you know, I came inside and was so tired. Oh man, all the cool weather went away and it's hot again. And I got my shower, and I got out of the shower, and I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm so tired. I just need to lay down a little bit before dinner, and then after dinner, I need to finish getting ready for, for sharing this morning. And so I lay down in my bed, and almost immediately after I laid down, there was a stirring in my spirit, and the Lord saying, John, you haven't spent any time with your kids today, because you've been working all day, and that's fine. And he's like, well, you should really go be with your kids I said, Lord, I'm really tired. <laughs> Just really, like, I, I'm not used to this. And, uh, and I was like, but no, you're, that's right. And so I get up, and I step out of our room to, to go play with my kids. I was really, all right, yeah, I can go play a game with them. I haven't played with them any. And I open the door, and I see our youngest walking into the house, and she is absolutely covered in mud. Like, her hands, you can't see any skin on her hands. She has mud on her head. She has mud on her legs. It's all over the place. And my wife is cooking dinner, and so she can't just stop and, and give our youngest a bath. And so as soon as I see our little one that is very, very dirty, I think, Lord, I agreed that I would go play with my kids. Like, this bath thing was not in the agreement. And the Lord said, no. That was your word, it wasn't my word. Uh, that I'm calling you to fulfill my word for your life, not your own. And it's so easy to say, okay, God, you know what? Fine, I'll do that, but this is what my expectations are. It needs to go this way, and as long as it goes this way, we'll be fine. And it doesn't go that way, 90% of the time. Because we, we can approach the Lord saying, God, I'm excited for you to fulfill your word that you're going to be the one fulfilling, but I want it to be my, my word. I want to be able to give my input, my say. And God's call on us is to trust him that his fulfilling his word and his timing and the words that he has said are what is best. 
that when we try to bring more to the table, we'll actually be deprived of what is best instead of simply coming and resting in what he's, He has for us. And so we come to, to Ezra and we see that God is initiating something and that His activity is always in alignment with what He said and not in contradiction to it. And so what is this specific word that He's fulfilling here? And it's probably just His promise that He's made to them that He's going to bring them out of the promised land or back to the promised land out of exile. If you keep your finger here in Ezra, flip over to Jeremiah 51. We're going to look at a number of different passages today, so we'll flip around a little bit. Jeremiah 51, because this is, remember, in Ezra, he's fulfilling the words that came from the mouth of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is a really long book. There's a lot of things he said. Uh, and so I don't know if this is the exact passage that he's talking about when he says he's going, this is what he's fulfilling, but the message that Jeremiah shared that he's going to bring his people back in 70 years. That's the general thing he's fulfilling. But here in 51, in verse 11, this is what God says. Sharpen the arrows, fill the quivers. The Lord has aroused the spirit of the kings of the Medes. So this is another nation. Because his purpose is against Babylon to destroy it. For it is the vengeance of the Lord, vengeance for his temple. Lift up a signal against the walls of Babylon and post a strong guard. Station sentries. Place men in ambush. For the Lord has purposed and performed what he spoke concerning the inhabitants of Babylon. And we could spend easily a sermon in that one phrase. For the Lord has both purposed and performed. And this is the Christian life. That the Lord both purposes and he performs. This is our salvation and this is our sanctification. This is what it means to be a Christian. Is believing that as I have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so I'm to walk in him. In faith. Receiving him in faith, trusting that he's the one who has provided salvation for my soul and believing also by faith that he's the one who will sustain me in my life, in my relationship with him. That I'm not saved by grace and then maintain that salvation by works, but it's saved by grace and maintained in that relationship with Christ by grace. That God purposes it and he's the one who performs it. With his promise to, to the Israelites, he purposed that he was going to bring them out of slavery and out of exile. And he purposed that he would bring them back into the promised land. And he's the one who's going to perform it. He's the one who's keeping his word. Staying true to his word. What does it mean to purpose to do something? You know, we don't use that phrase very much. I have purposed to fill in the blank. It's not the way we rephrase things, but that's how he says it. He is purposed to do something. When I was growing up, one of my brothers, whenever he would get really upset, this is when he was young, when he would get really upset, he would get so angry that he would hold his breath until he passed out. I think, wow, like that's, that's a strong will. I, how do you keep yourself from breathing until you pass out? 
But he would do it. He purposed in his mind, you know what? I'm really angry, and this is how I'm expressing my anger. I'm not breathing. That is a great way to, no, that's a bad idea. Um, and so he, that's what it means to purpose in our hearts. So to purpose is say, to have an, a goal in mind and to be resolved in our hearts that that goal is going to be fulfilled. That we purpose towards something. We commit to something. And there's a number of passages that we could look at to see how God, this is just reiterated again and again throughout Scripture, that God completes what He purposes. We'll just look at one uh, in Isaiah 14. That as God establishes His purposes, He's going to bring those purposes to pass. And as we know and recognize that He has purposes in our own lives, specific callings on us, that He is going to bring those to pass. In Isaiah 14, verse 24, He says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned, so it will stand. To break Assyria in my land, and I will trample him on my mountains. Then his yoke will be removed from them, and his burden removed from their shoulder. This is the plan devised against the whole earth, and this is the hand that has stretched out against all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? The Lord has planned, and who can frustrate it? And so we look at the world around us today and we say, the Lord has planned. Who can frustrate it? It's okay. In all of the unknowns, the Lord is going to complete what he's purposed. And so how is it that he does that? He uses people oftentimes. And if you're back in Ezra, I'm actually going to read Ezra now. Uh, I've only read one verse so far. Uh, Back in Ezra... It says in verse 1 that he had stirred up the, heart, the spirit of Cyrus. And then jumping down to verse 5. It says, Then the heads of fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. All those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, and with valuables, aside from all that was given as a free will offering. And so what we see here is God stirring in the hearts of people. God purposed something. He said, I'm going to bring my people back into the promised land. And then what did God do? He starts stirring in people's hearts to make that purpose realized. He stirs in the heart of Cyrus, who is a pagan king, doesn't believe in the Lord. And God says, I'm going to use this unbeliever to fulfill my purposes because God can do that because no one's going to thwart his purposes. And then he goes to his people and he stirs in their hearts and saying, hey, you guys have lives and you're settled here in Babylon. Well, guess what? I want some of you to go back to Israel where there's nothing established. It's like starting from scratch. You have to plow the land, clean the land because no one's been living there. Just a few people. And so you're going to go back and you're going to rebuild Jerusalem. 
And then they're going to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. It's going to be hard work. And God is stirring in people's hearts to be willing to lay down their livelihoods and step out in faith and enter into what's hard because they know this is what God is stirring in me to do. Because God's stirrings are powerful. And not only does he stir in the hearts of those who go back, but he also stirs in the hearts of those who stay, but they support them. This is how missions happens most of the time. Is that God stirs in the hearts of some people to go, and he stirs in the hearts of other people to give and to send, and he sends people out to the furthest corners of the earth so that the good news of Christ can be preached to the nations. And so this is still how God works. This is how God works in our lives today. You know, last, last night, my heart was stirred as I was laying in my bed, and God said, get up. And I said, okay. And in our day-to-day interactions with people, we see somebody that we don't necessarily get along with or aren't drawn to, and that we, we hear the Lord stirring in our hearts, go reach out to that person. And we say, but they looked at me funny. And God says, go. Okay. And God stirs in our hearts in both the big things, big decisions, quote-unquote big decisions, and in the little day-to-day interactions and decisions that we make. He's stirring in our hearts. How does God perform what he purposes? Through his people. Through this stirring that's taking place. This is why he says, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. Because as as we're walking according to the stirrings of Christ in our hearts and dependence on him, then we're going to be walking in obedience to him as well. And so God is stirring in the hearts of his people. And they begin getting ready to, to move back. How come? So he's, he's purposed and performed for his people to return to the land. But why? What's the big picture? Well, what is God wanting to accomplish in sending his people back? Not just so that he can be keeping his word and he can be a truthful God. But he has good reasons for it. He has good reasons beyond that. Good reasons for his people. What is he... Who does he use specifically in this story to to purpose and perform what he's doing? And we're going to jump down to chapter 2 in Ezra. And it starts talking about specifically some of the men that are going. In verse 1 it says, Now these are the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of the exiles from whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own city. I'm just going to read these first two names. These are the ones that came up with Zerubbabel and Jeshua. And there's a long list of people there. But I want to look at these two men first. Who was Zerubbabel? Well, if you flip over to Matthew chapter 1, we see Zerubbabel come up again. And there's a couple other places in the Old Testament that he comes up. And this is the genealogy of Jesus in verse 12. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Sheotiel, and Sheotiel the father of Zerubbabel. There he is. Zerubbabel is in the line of Christ. One of the men that came up, whom the Lord stirred in his heart to return to the land to rebuild the temple, 
so that the people could again worship the Lord in the land of promise was Zerubbabel, someone who was in the line of David. And then the other one, Jeshua. If you flip over to Haggai, this one's always hard to find. Haggai chapter 1. And it says, in the second year, this is verse 1, second year of Darius, the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheotiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, or Jeshua, same person here, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So Jeshua would have been the high priest. Zerubbabel was in the line of David, and these are two of the leading men that are, the Lord stirred in their hearts to bring people back into the land of promise. Jeshua and Zerubbabel. And what's, what I find so interesting about this story, especially with, with Jeshua, is that as God is bringing his people back into the land of promise, he's using a man whose name is Jeshua, and that means God is salvation. And in the book of Joshua, when God brings the Israelites into the promised land for the very first time, he uses a man who is called Joshua. God is salvation. And now, after they've been exiled, he's bringing them back into the land of promise. And he uses a man called Jeshua. God is salvation. And then Matthew comes, the Gospel of Matthew, and Christ comes onto the scene, and we see that God is leading his people into the land of promise through a man called Yeshua. Joshua. Jesus whose name means God is salvation. And every time in the Old Testament God brings his people back into the land, it's under the, the truth that God is their only salvation. And then in the New Covenant, as Christ comes, God's message is once again, this is your salvation. There is salvation in no one else. But Jesus is the last Joshua there's not going to be another one leading the people into the land of promise. Our rest is found in Christ. There's nothing more to be done. And so we, we see that God is consistent in reminding us, reminding His people that salvation is found in no one else. And so why is it that they, that they return back to the land so they can return under the line of David and under the priesthood to have their worship of the one true God restored. And as they're returning, back in Isaiah chapter 11, we, we read the beginning of chapter 10 or part of chapter 10 when we first started. And chapter 11 carries on this thought that we started in chapter 10. As they're returning, this is the promise that they're returning under. You know, they're, they're thinking about as they go back in the land that God has fulfilled all of these good promises to them. He's fulfilled his word just as he said. And that means that words that he's also said that he hasn't yet fulfilled, he's going to fulfill because he's done that in the past. 
So in Isaiah 11, they continue to think about these promises that he's made. In verse 1, as they're going back into the land, they could think of this promise as well. It says, Then a shoot, is after they're back in the land, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord and he will not judge by what his eyes see nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked and also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And as they're going back into the land, it's with the expectation the Messiah is coming. Christ is coming. And we live in the reality that the Messiah has come. That we can have fullness of hope. Our faith is well placed in Christ because he is the fulfillment of God's word. And he will continue to fulfill his word to his people. And so there's not fear, but there's confidence. There's courage. That what God has purposed in our lives, he's going to perform. And he's purposed for us as followers of Christ to bear his image. And he says he's going to perform that in our lives as we walk with him. That he's purposed for us to know joy and life, to love, to have peace. And he performs that. It's when we determine that we have to be the makers of our own joy and our own peace that those things leave us. But as we are entrusting that he's going to perform what he's promised, he's faithful to do so. All right, let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we uh, just thank you that you are faithful. Lord, I pray uh, that we would just have our confidence in Christ alone. Lord, that as, as doubts rise up in our hearts, the discouragement and the, the challenges of making decisions, Lord, that we would be quick to fall to our knees and, and trust you and know that you are, uh, you are a refuge. We thank you that you do keep your word, that we do not need to, to second guess what you have said. And I do pray that we would be a people who are characterized by that as well, that we would walk in integrity in the words that we speak and the commitments that we make, just a, a glimpse of who you are to the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.